Mark or Philemon. Um, I am actually, I just started seminary a few months ago, and this is kind of the passage that I've been assigned for this course. Um, and it is a little bit of a long passage. It's not even at the beginning of Exodus. It's kind of jumping right into the middle of the story. So um, we're just going to have to kind of roll with it. Um, our text today from Exodus 6 picks up in the middle of the story of Israel's bondage to the Egyptians. Uh, things have gone from bad to worse, and Moses, that celebrated mediator of yore, has his doubts about the whole mission of deliverance that God is working. And so our text today starts at chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt. to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day, and we thank you for your word, which is truth. Now, and as we look at the passage in Exodus of your gospel to the Israelites, may you um, work through this word and the weakness of your servant before you, that your people may hear your word and rejoice in your good news that you are bringing to them. We ask this in the name of our Lord. Amen. Amen. I felt hopeless. There was no way out. There was never going to be a way out. These words, written by Christopher Dickey in an online article, could describe what the Israelites were feeling in today's text. As they lived in a situation without hope and under the burdens of forced labor at the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, for Christopher, however, the tyrant was not a person, but a substance. You see, Christopher was an addict. As a teenager, Christopher started using drugs. And at age 18, he overdosed. While lying in his hospital bed after being resuscitated by the hospital staff, Christopher realized something needed to change. Realization and actualization, however, are two different things. And Christopher slowly came to realize he was enslaved to the substances he desired, and his helplessness led to hopelessness. 
Christopher's situation may seem extreme to some, but I think each of you had some time, like me, has felt similar hopelessness at your own helplessness in the face of some internal or external circumstance. Maybe the burden of debt or difficult work situation has prompted hopelessness. Maybe some besetting sin or broken or difficult relationship has caused it. Maybe, like Christopher, addiction has enslaved you. Maybe somebody's health or um, cancer or the death of a loved one has caused it. Whatever it is, whatever the effect of sin, whether personal sin or general as a result of the fall, whatever has rendered you helpless and sapped your hope, you perceived yourself dominated by the situation. Maybe you wanted to cry out, where are you, God? Maybe you did cry out. Or maybe you could not find words to express the depth of the suffering you were experiencing. It is into situations as dark and bleak as Christopher's and yours that God brings good news. In today's passage, we see God announcing his good news, that is, his gospel, to Israel. This good news is in the form of a formal oath, where God, the divine king, promises to do something and then proceeds to act to fulfill his promises. In this passage, we also see God acting uh, as king, using Moses as his ambassador and Aaron as his mouthpiece. In the midst of a terrible situation, God gives good news to the people of Israel in only seven verses, verses 2 through 8. And in those verses, we will see that the good news consists of a revelation of a new divine name. It comes with a history, it announces redemption and judgment, creates a new relationship, and lastly, it promises a future and a home. As I talk about each of these gospel features, I will show how the gospel given to us in John contains the same feature, so that you might see more clearly the good news to Israel contains the seeds of the good news to us so many years removed from the Israelites at the Exodus and the Israelites at the time of Jesus. And that's so you may have hope in whatever situations you face that God, our God, has promised a future home without suffering and sin where we may dwell with him forever. But first, the good news comes into the midst of terrible situations, that is, into darkness. In the first five chapters of Exodus, we see the situation of the Israelites go from bad to worse. They are compelled into labor, building cities to foreign gods for the Egyptians. And then, after Moses brings the first word of hope, Pharaoh makes their lives impossible, requiring them to make the same number of bricks while also gathering the straw. The whole situation continues to go from bad to worse, such that in chapter 5, Moses even complains to God, asking him, Why have you done evil to this people? Well, in chapter 6, verse 1, then, we see a but in Scripture. And uh, there the Lord promises Moses that he, Moses, will see the salvation that the Lord is announcing. But it would seem that the Lord waited until the situation was as bleak as possible before formally announcing this good news. Why? Without probing into the mysteries of God's hidden will, I think it's for at least two reasons. One, so that when God acts in salvation, it is impossible for any human to claim that the hum humans have helped God. And second, because good news is like a light in the pitch black. It is all the brighter for those who are in the dark. In John's Gospel, we see a similar description in chapter 1, where it says, In him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And later in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In this description, Jesus Christ is called the light of men. Why? Because he is life itself. John starts his account of the good news of God contrasting between light and dark. The light of the word of God shines into the spiritual darkness of this world, illuminating reality as it truly is. 
and dispelling the darkness of sin and despair. When the Gospel of John refers to darkness, it's bad. It's the darkness of a tomb. So in Exodus 6, we see the darkness of an impossible burden placed upon the people of Israel. And they are as good as dead, as the complaint the foremen of the Israelites speak to Moses in chapter 5. There they accuse Moses of having put a sword into the hands of the Egyptians to kill them. So now at the lowest point in Israel's experience, God says now in verse 1 of our passage, which is to say the times of suffering are completed. And the announcement of good news follows. I wonder how many of you, uh, when you first heard the gospel or uh, later, even after hearing it for many times, if it became meaningful and potent during or right after a period of deep spiritual darkness, maybe even more than one such period, how bright did the gospel appear in that moment? Good news is only good news to those who know that no matter how hard they try and labor, they will only ever receive bad news. Now, several months ago, my wife and I received a letter in the mail from the White House. And maybe some of you received a similar letter. Well, in this letter, the President of the United States was announcing to us some news he clearly intended for us to interpret as good news. And this was during the darkness of COVID-19. At the bottom of this letter was President Biden's signature indicating the authenticity of the news. If the President had not signed his name to the announcement, I could not have assumed it was legitimate. The point is, good news often needs a name to establish legitimacy. So returning to Exodus 6, we can see that even in just a quick reading of the formal announcement, one name stands out. It's the Lord in all capitals. This is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush a few chapters prior. Now, unlike the bureaucratic letters from the U.S. government, which start pretty casually, uh, this one started, my fellow American, ancient decrees and letters often started with the name of the sender. The announcement in our passage is no different. In verse 2, God says, I am the Lord. In the part of the announcement directed to the people of Israel, not only does God preface the decree with his name, but also ends it with the name. Everything between these two declarations is to be taken on the authority of that name. However, what is interesting about this name is that it is a new self-revelation by God to the people of Israel. In chapter 3, the name is translated, I am. There's much to be said of this name, but for now what is important is that God is introducing himself with a new name at a turning point in redemptive history. He is about to do a mighty work in redeeming the people of Israel from slavery. We know it's a new name for the Israelites because in verse 3 God says, He did not make his name, the Lord, known to the patriarchs. He says that instead of relating to God as God Almighty, as the patriarchs had done, Israel and the whole world thereby would know him as the Lord. It is also important to see here that God is providing continuity to the Israelites. He doesn't simply say, I am the Lord, and leave it there, but rather, your fathers knew me by the name God Almighty, and that is still my name, but I am revealing to you another name, the Lord. And we see that this new name is the name that Israel has and uses for God throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So then, in the New Testament, what is the new name God announces? Well, it turns out to be the greatest revelation of God ever given. The divine name as it is in the inner relations of the Trinity. That is, one God in the persons of Father, Son, and Spirit. <laughs> Listen to the testimony of John the Baptist from the Gospel of John. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. In that passage, we see the three persons of the Trinity. We see the Father speaking to John. We see the Son receiving the Holy Spirit, which is descending from heaven. Furthermore, just as the Lord in Exodus claims continuity with the God Almighty of the patriarchs, in the announcement to the Israelites, Jesus claims continuity with the Lord of the Exodus. In John chapter 8, where he says to the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. At that point, the Jews understood what he was saying because they picked up stones to stone him. He was claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. Now, the word Trinity, while entirely appropriate for a church name, uh, in our culture has been reduced to a cyberpunk-sounding feminine name, which sort of clouds the importance of the name, the word, for the Christian experience. It is fundamental for Christians because we only have access to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, and that reality is the beginning of sanctification for the Christian and of new life. Returning again to my example of the letter from the White House, the first sentence of the letter provided historical context needed to understand the announcement of the good news of financial relief. Now, apparently, I would not have received any financial relief had not President Biden signed into law on March 11, 2021, the American Rescue Plan, and I needed to know that in order to both understand from where my aid originated and so that I would know that it took a significant amount of effort on the part of the President to lift his pen and sign that bill. And therefore, I'd be able to extend the commensurate amount of gratitude to the President. Now, apparently President Biden has taken a lesson from the ancients because in our Exodus passage, we see the good news came to Israel with a history. And it is prerequisite for understanding the origin and purpose of the deliverance of the Israelites. In verse 3, the Lord states, he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 4, the Lord reminds Moses he established his covenant with them and promised them the land of Canaan. The full blessing of ownership the Israelites or the patriarchs never received. In verse 5, the Lord says he has remembered his covenant. In verse 8, the Lord promises fulfillment of the land promised to the people of Israel. Now, by the time this news was announced to the people of Israel, Jacob had already been dead for about 400 years. So the question must be asked, if the Lord is recalling this history and remembering his covenant, would it have done any good if the people of Israel had forgotten the covenant promises and the stories of the patriarchs? Now, before I give the answer I think is true, let me ask you all if any of you have ever received a phone call from a number you did not recognize. And uh, at receiving some call, you answered it and you said, or you were delighted to hear a recording tell you how lucky you are to have just one and all expenses paid cruise to the Caribbean. Now, it's a bit dated because I haven't received such a call since COVID-19 started. Cruises are no longer quite as popular as they once were. But you, like me, probably would just hang up. Why? Because it's not real. I don't have a history with this caller. I didn't enter any sweepstakes. None of my ancient ancestors entered any sweepstakes for a cruise. And so there's no, there's no history with this pe person. And I think the reaction of the Israelites would have been similar had they truly forgotten about the promises made to the patriarchs. Now verse 9 could give the impression that's exactly how the people of Israel interpreted the news. It says the people of Israel did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I think, however, the rejection is from brokenness and not from forgetfulness. Because in chapter 4, 
When Moses first brings the proclamation of the Lord's message, the people believed in the Lord and his promises. So the Lord brings the the history of the promises to the minds of the Israelites in this proclamation of the good news because they also remember them. When God remembers something, we also should remember. So does the gospel of the Lord Jesus come with history? You bet. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells the Jews, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's not condemning the Jews because they are searching scripture and know their history. He's condemning them for not understanding that the history containing the scriptures is pointing to him who is right there in front of them. A few verses later he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus is saying here, all of the scriptures are about him. Well, so what? For those of us who are 2,000 years removed, this means we need both testaments of scripture in order to truly understand the gospel in depth. Both mature and new Christians ought to diligently study both testaments. And before leaving this point, I must confess that I do really appreciate the efforts of the Gideons to distribute the copies of the New Testament, especially in our cultural situation. But I don't understand why they don't hand out copies of both testaments. The gospel to the Israelites in Exodus came with history, and so does the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You cannot understand the good news apart from knowing the history leading to it. Returning to Exodus 6, we next see the good news promises redemption, and at the same time, judgment. Look in verse 6. The Lord promises to bring out the people, deliver them, and redeem them. That's the good news, right? They're going to be freed from slavery and bondage. How? The Lord's outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. He's bringing it to the bad guys. But here I would like to highlight the word redeem. In English, the word has definite connotations of paying a price to obtain something or someone, either as buying back what was previously owned or obtaining it new. So when the Lord says, I will redeem you, what price is he paying and to whom? Well, in the final clause, the price seems to be great acts of judgment, and the implied whom then are the uh, Egyptians and the Pharaoh. But as the subsequent narrative reveals the fulfillment of the promise of redemption, it also shows that redemption is only accomplished because of this judgment. Who receives the judgments? In the first nine plagues, it's only Egypt, Egypt and not the Israelites, because the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So in a sense, the first nine plagues are both partial payments to Pharaoh as well as warnings for continuing to refuse to let the Lord's firstborn son leave. I could stop there, and this question of redemption kind of makes sense. Pharaoh is not letting Israel go, so God is giving him the judgments he deserves. However, God sends one last plague, and this plague is different. The tenth judgment, which is the destruction of the firstborn of man and beast, affects all of the land of Egypt, both the Egyptians and the Israelites. Those who are accepted are those who sprinkled the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts. So the judgment also applied to Israel. It was only through the blood of the lamb that Israel escaped the final judgment. And it was through the, that judgment that the redemption was accomplished. Because if you remember what happens right after, as soon as that occurs, the Pharaoh drives out the Israelites from his land. Redemption and judgment are complements to the gospel in, uh, in Exodus. 
But is the same true of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, what is John the Baptist's confession of Christ in John chapter 1? He sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From the account in Exodus, we saw the redemption of Israel was accomplished by the judgment on the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb for the life of the son. To call Jesus the Lamb of God speaks of the purpose of his life and death, the sacrificial lamb. And we saw that again just this morning in our passage uh, from 1 Peter. Where 1 Peter, Peter writes, You are ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you see that this notion of lamb is important, and it is the judgment that he bore which has paid for our sins. Well, what does the Lord himself say? In John chapter 12, Jesus, knowing his time is at hand, says to the crowd, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Here Jesus is speaking of his death as a sacrifice by which Satan is judged, and God's wrath is turned aside from sinners who believe in Christ, because the judgment for our sin fell upon him. Here we see, again, pair of judgment and redemption. They are compliments. Here also what the author of John's Gospel says in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Those who do not repent are still under judgment. Now, some might respond to me with something like, Sure, Dan, that was a different culture. Angry gods, both thirsty deities, our culture is more enlightened, we're scientific, we've kind of moved past that. We must simply present the gospel as telling the world that God loves them, wants everyone to be happy, and the greatest evils are unjust social structures. Now, although scripture does say God is love, and unjust social structures do exist, scripture is clear on this point. We need redemption from God because of our own sins, not from external injustices. Without the reality of impending doom, there is nothing from which to be saved. Remember the situation of the Israelites. The best news comes in the greatest darkness. Having briefly explored the promise of redemption and judgment, one may well ask, what is the purpose of the redemption of the Israelites? In Exodus, the Lord's promised redemption is to create a people. Look in verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The Lord promises to take the people of Israel as his own people, and he will be their God, and they shall worship him because of the redemption he accomplished from the Egyptians. In this promise, God is setting a people apart to serve him as subjects, serve the king. Additionally, this promise is relational. God is bringing the people of Israel into a new relation with, to himself than previously existed. However, despite the graciousness and mercy the Lord shows to the people of the Old Testament, we see that throughout the rest of Old Testament history, there's still a distance between God and his people. The gospel of Jesus Christ also creates a people and establishes a new relationship between God and his people. In John chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples before his betrayal, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants do not know what their master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. 
In this passage, Jesus is telling his disciples they will no longer be as servants to him, but friends, which is a new relationship with himself and with God. And therefore, they are also a new people by the word Jesus spoke to them, and that is the church. After the resurrection, Jesus proclaims his people have an even closer relationship to God than mere friends. In John chapter 20, Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Talk about good news. Jesus calls his people his brothers. He says that his Father is our Father. There's no greater state of blessing than to partake of the same relationships that the three persons of the Godhead share with each other. And this is the reality for those who have believed in Christ and whose sins are forgiven. Well, the last thing we see in the good news to the Israelites is the promise of home and rest. Verse 8 announces the Lord's promise to bring the Israelites into the promised land and give it to them in the fulfillment of his promise to the patriarchs. And if you know the story, uh, you know that the generation of Israelites who participate in the deliverance of the Exodus don't actually experience the fulfillment of that blessing because of their sin. However, God is still faithful, and he, the promise that is announced beforehand, he later fulfills. Well, similarly, in John chapter 14, Jesus tells his troubled disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. The promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ is better than the promise of a land, a city, or a garden in this world. Though in the new heavens and the new earth, it may contain those things. It is the promise of a place in the very house of God, where we may live in blessedness forever with Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, that brings us to the end of the gospel to the Israelites. Uh, The passage in Exodus still shows us two responses that this news generates. Rejection and humility. In verse 9, as I've mentioned, the text tells us the Israelites reject the good news because of the conditions of their slavery. What is so remarkable is that the Lord proceeds to save them anyway. We know this because he immediately tells Moses to go into Pharaoh and demand to let the Israelites go. So we should see in this verse that it is God who is acting in redemption. It is not us or his people. Well, the second response to the gospel uh, is humility. Moses, having been rejected by the people, realizes that his lips cannot bring about a change of heart, either with good news or bad news. When Moses brings news of hope to the people of Israel, they reject him. Earlier, when he brought news of judgment, bad news, to Pharaoh, Pharaoh ignored him. So when the Lord tells Moses to speak to Pharaoh again, Moses acknowledges his uncleanness of speech and ineffectiveness to bring redemption or judgment by saying, I have uncircumcised lips. Clearly, this does not mean that he has flaps of skin hanging off of his lips, but means rather he is insufficient to carry the messages of the Lord. He is unworthy. He is unholy. But in verse 13, we see the Lord's graciousness. He circumcises Moses' lips. Again, not literally, but it does say that he gave Moses and Aaron a charge, that is, an official command to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then what happens? We don't see it in this passage, but the rest of the story, uh, if you read Exodus, from this point onward, Moses' words are effective. When he goes in to announce judgment on Pharaoh, judgment happens. It occurs. 
the plagues occur, the judgments happen, they fall on Pharaoh, and then the good news that Moses announces to the Israelites, they believe, they follow, they obey, with caveats. But his words now have the uh, influence and importance which he desired previously. But why is this so? It's not because Moses' power of speech. It's because the Lord makes the words effective. So people of God, when you speak the gospel, know that it is not you who make the words effective, but it is the Lord who makes the words effective and changes hearts. I earlier, if you remember way back, I spoke of Christopher Dickey. He is a real person, and that is really his name. And remember also with me that Christopher was enslaved to his addiction, without hope of salvation. One day, Christopher, in a very real sense, died while in his slavery. He was restored to life by God working through the doctors on call that day. With a new understanding of himself, Christopher underwent the painful and difficult toil of rehabilitation. Christopher found hope during the process, after which he found a new relationship in marriage. Now, having passed the trials of overcoming addiction, he labors to help other addicts to overcome their addictions and have hope in li a life free from slavery to substances. He identifies with those whom he helps and he understands their struggles. In Christopher's story, do you see echoes of someone else's story? Do you know what the name Christopher means? It means Christ bearer. Beloved, see how Christopher's story bears shadows of Christ's story and your story. Christ identified himself with sinful humanity, though remaining sinless. He entered into our slavery to sin. He lived a perfect life, and by his execution as a cursed man, though innocent, he redeemed his people. By his uh, resurrection and ascension, he now brings assistance to those with whom he has called his own. So in seeing Christ in this story, remember the salvation God has worked for you who believe. He has accomplished your redemption from the spiritual darkness of sin. Your judgment has already been borne by Christ. Your new relationship with the triune God is already established, and a future home to dwell bodily with your God has been promised, but not yet fully realized. So have hope, people of God, in whatever darkness or difficulty or trials you may face today, tomorrow, this week, next week, next year, next decade, have hope in our God who will one day make his promise into a reality. Because what is the most fundamental part of the good news? Is that our salvation is not up to us, but up to God. The same God Almighty of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same I Am of Moses and Israel, and the same Father, Son, and Spirit of John's Gospel. He is faithful, and he will do it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today, the good news which you have given us from uh, Exodus. We see in it the same pattern that you give us in the Gospel of John. We ask that you would uh, give us hope in the promises of redemption, that you have fully forgiven our sins in Christ, and that through him we now have new life with you, and we will have that life with you forever, and you will take us home to be with you. Bless now the rest of our worship, we ask in the name of our Lord. Amen. Thank you.